today. Um, uh, but there, we're going to stay with the main point, which really has to do with the gospel and with resurrection. Um, what's going on is you know that in Corinth, there's been those three major issues that Paul's been dealing with with the people in Corinth, right? The first one is that there's been immorality. And there's been immorality, sexual immorality, that people haven't been living appropriately. And uh, the, the second thing that's been going on is that there's consumerism and competitiveness in the consumerism. And what that means is, is instead of people investing into God and submitting to God, they're trying to just receive from preachers. They, they, they became fans of preachers instead of obedient and submissive to the word of God. And then they got competitive over which preacher they liked the most. Okay, and then the third problem they were having was with a false theology, a doctrinal issue, which had to do with resurrection and had to do with... Uh, this group of eschatological women, we call them, which is this group of people, these ladies who believed that they were like the angels, they had already been resurrected. And so there was division in all three of these camps. It caused division in, in the body of Christ. One, these people were acting inappropriately and weren't being confronted, and it was causing a fracture in the body. Secondly, there was that group of people who were uh, kind of, it was all about like, what is fun for me during the worship service, and, and I prefer this guy over that guy, and it was causing division. And then the third, this group of people who had the theological and doctrinal issues, they were now acting inappropriately because of the false doctrine. And false doctrine does that. It doesn't lead us to loving other people. It leads us, it causes problems. False doctrine always causes problems when it comes to other people. It doesn't actually lead toward love. Okay, so those were the three issues that he's been dealing with all throughout the book. And he's broken them down and he's going after them time and time again. And when he got to chapter 12, he talked about how they're all one body and they need to be unified. And in chapter 13, he, remember, was the great, great chapter of chapter 13 where he says it's all about love at the end of the day. And uh, it was a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal chapter where he gets back and tells them what it's supposed to look like at the end is not about any of that stuff you're dealing with. It's supposed to be about love. And then he kind of revisits it for a minute in chapter 14 to describe how that looks in a worship service. And then when he gets to chapter 15, what he does at this moment to kind of summarize it all and wrap it all up and get them back to the foundation is he ends where he started the letter. And when he started the letter was he said, there's all these fractions, but you remember, we don't preach human wisdom. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach because that's where the power is. That's where he's, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. I came with the demonstration of the spirit's power. Okay, and that had to do with the word of testimony about what it is that Christ had done. And so now here, after he's said all this stuff, he summarizes it again and he brings him back and he says, I want to remind you, and we're about to read it, I want to remind you of the gospel. And he brings him back to the gospel. So for each one of those situations, he says the only answer, the only power to deal with all of that, and the only thing that can actually effectively help us live the way we're supposed to live is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So with that said, one other thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that this chapter is gigantic. It's huge. It's enormous. And as you know, we've read every chapter uh, in each sermon. We've read every word of 1 Corinthians leading up to this. And I seriously considered us not reading the entire chapter because I'm like, that's just a lot of verses. Um, But, you know, God has extended a great deal of grace to us, all of us. And so we're supposed to 
continue to further the grace. And you know, the practice we have here is to stand in honor of God's word when we read it. But today there's grace, okay? And so you're not gonna have to stand for the entire reading of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're dealing with the gospel and we're dealing with grace. So of course we need to extend the grace. Your knees won't have to hurt as long as you promise that in your heart you will stand in honor of God's word and that you will work diligently in your minds to stay sharp even though your bodies might get warm and cushy in those chairs during a long chapter. A deal? We have a deal? All right, deal. Pinky swear? All right. Chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of them whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will that do? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. 
just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to shame you. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind, a seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be when the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown is, is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so are those from heaven. And just as we have been born, just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. May God add enormous and gigantic blessings to our lives as we not only hear this word as it's read, but as we integrate it, as we believe it, as we allow it to sink deep into our lives and take over our lives. Please join me in prayer. God, we're thankful for your word. Every ounce of it, every little scratch of a pen on a scroll, every spirit-infused idea that you placed into these men to, to, to write this down. We love your word. And we have a struggle at times to see your word as reality instead of seeing our own thoughts and emotions as reality. And we hope and pray that part of what happens in our time together uh, when we gather together is that you help us 
come to a new sense of reality, God. And we know that everything that happens around here, while we, we talked about all the different people who do all sorts of different stuff to help out around here, that what we really look for in the body of Christ is not the work of men and of women, but the work of God. And so we ask that today your spirit would move in our hearts and that, God, as we hear your word, that you would empower that word by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Power. What is power? The ability to enforce your will? Brute strength? Intelligence? Innovation? Wealth? Influence? We strive for power in the halls of government. We work to expand our influence in the boardroom, the classroom. We struggle to lengthen our lives. Day in, day out, we toil to increase our wealth. But how much control do we really have? Our best laid plans can fall apart in an instant. Our most trusted technology can fail. Our hard-earned investments can evaporate before our very eyes. And no matter how disciplined we are, our bodies grow old and frail. But we are not without hope. Even in our weakness, there is good news for all people, an eternal power beyond human understanding that can soften the hardest heart, heal the deepest wound, bring peace, even joy, in any circumstance and salvation to all who believe. That power is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only power that lasts. The power of the gospel. You know, we talk about the power of the cross resurrection power, and we talk about the power of the gospel. What is gospel? You know what that word means? What does it mean? Good news. Okay, good news. The power of the good news. I mean, isn't that a little bit weird that we talk about gigantic power and we attach it to what? News? Actually, in our society, we probably understand that pretty profoundly, don't we? I mean, how much influence does the media have? It's pretty profound, isn't it? The power of being able to share a story. The power of be, being able to, to hold information or share information that can be very important and vital information to how we function, how we view our world. News is a very important thing. It's by news that we gain information. It's by that information that we gain awareness and perspective. And what we choose to think and believe and decide on has a lot to do with what news we've heard. And apparently, according to Paul, the power to deal with all the issues in Corinth had to do with one thing, the news about Jesus Christ. And the news about Jesus Christ was everything. And so what he does here in chapter 15 
This is pretty incredible. I mean, after all those amazing things and the depth of, of communication, he says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. Okay, and that word's important. You've taken your stand on this. What does he mean you've taken your stand? I mean, this is like the foundation. This is what they're standing on right here, okay? That whatever you decide to stand on, it's got to be firm, right? And this is what I'm standing on. I I will stand here and go no further. You will not move me from this place except over my dead body. I choose to stand here. That's the kind of stand he's talking about, and it's that kind of stand that many of them actually took when it came to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. By this, he says, by this gospel, you are saved. Okay, I want to talk about this word saved for a second. When you hear the word saved, it may bring certain thoughts to your mind or certain images to your mind. The word saved, particularly if you hear it in church. You know, if you were at Hurricane Sandy and you were at the beach and you saw some... um, foolish person who was willing to go surfing or something in the middle of of a hurricane or something and yet you used the word saved what would you think of you know you'd think about some lifeguard going out there or some actually it'd be some helicopter some coast guard helicopter going out there and dropping down a line to save the the moron who's out in the water in a hurricane you know that's what you would think of the word saved but when you're in church and you hear the word saved what do you think of you think of conversion Right? Because this is the word that in, in recent years, American evangelicalism has most coined as the, the term for conversion. Right? And it's, it's appropriate. I mean, it's in the scripture. This is from the text. Is this word saved? But there's many, many words in the text about the conversion, not just one. But recently, this has been the one that's been used very heavily, is this word saved. And there's any number of words that we could use. This is one we've used heavily. This word saved typically... In, uh, in the uh, American religious world and, and very often in the evangelical world is that this word saved, what it's meant is, is kind of this connotation. What am I saved from? I'm saved from hell, right? And what am I saved to? Heaven, eternal life. That's the terms, okay? How do I get saved? I get saved by Jesus dying on the cross, but what's my part in that? I have to accept that. And the way we typically talk about accepting that is how? We have a prayer to receive Christ as our personal Savior, you know, the one who saves us. And so what happens is, is if this is the timeline of my life, somewhere along my life, I'm walking, and Jesus has already died on the cross. I mean, he's timeless and everything anyway, but he's, he already died on the cross, and I'm walking, and at some point in my life, I come to terms with a truth a reality that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, a doctrine of Christian faith, okay? And, and I, I decide that I'm going to pray to receive that doctrine, to receive that truth, and to state that I believe this is true, okay? And what happens is, is I'm told that, that if I believe this and I pray this prayer, then when I get all the way to the end of the timeline, all the way down here, and I face death, that when I open up my eyes... I will be saved because I will be in heaven, okay? And I, I, I refer to myself as saved throughout my life, but what I'm actually saying I'm going to be saved from is something that happens after my life, okay? And so that's the framing of this word saved in, uh, in general in America right now. Okay, well, with that framework, let me ask you a question. 
It says, by this gospel you are saved if, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. What, what does that bring up in your mind? I mean, instantly, there's kind of like a, a, a thought process. If you've, if you've been around the church at all for a while, you know, instantly it brings up a debate, a thought process. And what does it bring up? Eternal security, okay? Calvinism, Arminianism. Are once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? And the words are saved. Once saved, always saved, you know? And what does that mean? Well, and, and we struggle. And you know why we struggle so much on this debate? It's not so much because we haven't been able to figure out the doctrine of eternal security and where we stand on it. It's because our understanding of the word saved is so limited. We believe that what Jesus saved us from is from the fires of hell into eternity in heaven. And oh, he does. But that's so small compared to the breadth of what all he saved us from. And so it's hard for me to understand what it is he's talking about if the only thing I think of when I think of salvation is about eternity and I don't think about the present. You see, what happens is in Hurricane uh, Sandy, if the person's out there and, and they're in the water and the Coast Guard comes and they grab a hold of them, are they saved? Yes, they're saved. Why are they saved? Because they're not in the water anymore, right? Right? And that's why they're saved. They're not saved because of something that's going to happen in the future. They're saved because of something that already took place. They're saved because of something that's happening right now. And you see, what happens when it comes to the word salvation, all the way across the pages of Scripture, is that it refers certainly to eternity. It talks about the reward of everlasting life and all of those things. I mean, John 3.16, you know, you shall have everlasting life. That's awesome. You know, and it's a huge part of the salvation But much more explicitly, what Paul talks about in particular when it comes to salvation all across the pages of Scripture is not so much about eternity, but about the present. It's about right here and right now. It's about Jesus comes in his helicopter and wants to save me from what my life could be today into what it should be today. He wants to save me out of my emptiness, out of my purposelessness. He wants to save me out of my deception And he wants to save me into truth. He wants to save me into awareness. He wants to save me into purpose and into meaning. So I'm swimming in a sea of selfishness and meaninglessness. And he wants to grab me out of that. And today, he wants to put me, he wants to have me today say, I was saved today. I want to be able to get to the end of my day and look back at my day and say, you know what my day would have been without Jesus today? And you know what it was because of Jesus today? I was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ today. And I got evidence to prove it. And this is why, and when it comes to 1 John, one of the the verses that's used uh, to assure people of their salvation all the time is 1 John 5.13. And it says, These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know that you have everlasting life. So if you want to know if you have everlasting life, then those of you who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I write the book of 1 John to you so that you will know. And what does the the book of 1 John say? If you say that you 
believe in God, but you don't love your brother, then what? Then the truth of God is not within you. You see, this is what happens. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And by this, you will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. And that's what the whole book of 1 John 5, or the whole book of 1 John says. I will know I am saved. I will know about my everlasting life by looking at my life today. Why is that the case? Because salvation is not just something that I chose back then and that happens over there. Salvation is something that's much more profound, that's much more pervasive. It's much bigger than just a prayer and eternity. Salvation can change my life today, right here and right now. It can change my life. The power, the power of the gospel. You see, all the issues that they were having in Corinth, Paul wanted to address those issues. And he said, I got one answer for all the issues. And it's the gospel. It's the thing of primary importance. Is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You see, this is, uh, I want to give you a picture of this thing, okay? He says, I love this, where he says, uh, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, um, otherwise you have believed in vain, okay? And what, what, what's happening here, if you're holding firmly to it, there's another word he says in here called unswervingly. And wh- th- this is like, if, if I know that he's saving me, that he has saved me, he died on the cross, that's already done. If I'm saying in this moment in my life, as I'm journeying through my life, I'm praying and I'm saying, I know that uh, I don't have to fear death anymore because you have it in your hands, so I trust you. But then, th- that's cool. But then the next day, what happens is, is that, I trusted Christ for my eternal destination. But now, today, there's this pressure at work, this tension, and it's getting me frustrated. Or at home, this person did this thing to me. Or at church, you know, things are weird. And I have a choice as to how I'm going to react in those situations. And the question is, is the power of the good news, is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sins, is that powerful only to save me from the fires of hell into heaven? Or is that also powerful enough to change my day today? And what he's saying is I have to hold unswervingly to the gospel if it will have effect in my life. But what happens is if I, if I go toward it and I say yes, but then when this person makes me mad, now all of a sudden I'm not receiving my identity from my salvation in Jesus. Instead, I got to hold on to my pride and stand up for myself. And instead of turning the other cheek, I turn their cheek, you know, and that's me moving over here and no longer holding unswervingly to the gospel. And then I come back the next day and I'm like, God, I'm really sorry. You know, I blew that one. And I know that you love me and I know that you've saved me and I know that whatever they said doesn't matter. What you say matters. So I'm going to hold on to you. And then in the next moment, something happens and I'm actually able to live the way he calls me to. And there's this swerving nature of our lives. But when we're swerving, we're not receiving the fullness of the power of the gospel. We're losing it. And this is why he says right here, he says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So I have to hold firmly, unswervingly to this gospel in order to receive the fullness of what it has. Otherwise, all right, I'm believing for that, but it's vain. You know what I mean? Like what's the point of believing in that? I don't, I don't live there, I live here. This is where I live. And is he sa- am I saved? 
you know? And so when I ask someone, you know, I, I, I usually don't ask someone if they've been saved because I think that the word uh, uh, solicits a, a kind of thinking that uh, we've kind of lost the deepest meaning of it. But if I do ask someone, have you been saved? Um, I always ask them like, and they say yes. I'm like, oh, so what did he save you from today? You know, like, what, so tell me what he saved you from, you know? And they say, well, you know, he saved me from hell. Not yet, Right. I mean, maybe he did on the cross, and that's good and everything, but you, you can't testify to that yet. You haven't seen it. You haven't witnessed it. You haven't been brought out of the fires, and maybe you have in, in a spiritual sense and in a theological sense, but you haven't experienced the fires and been brought out of them. You know, what have you been saved from that you can testify to? Because when Paul said, he said, I didn't come with wise or persuasive, persuasive words, but I came with a testimony of the gospel and a demonstration of the Lord's power. So he came testifying what God had done in his life. And what did he do in his life? He took him from being a Christian killer to a Christian maker. You know, that's what he did with Paul. That's a testimony. That's, man, look at how I've been saved. I used to kill Christians and now he uses me to make them. You know, that's a testimony about how I've been saved, about how the power of God is working in my life. Okay, and so he says this. He sa- so then he goes and he reminds them of what the gospel is. For what I received, I passed on to you. So here's the good news. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So what does this mean that Christ died for our sins? We are created in the image of God, and because of that, we have an internal uh, understanding of both relationship and of truth. And what happens here in the relationship and truth or spirit and truth is this. It's that when I do something wrong, I know that for doing something wrong, there must be consequences or punishment, right? And so that's the internal justice meter that's in me because God created me. So I have an internal justice meter that says, I did something wrong, boop, there needs to be punishment, right? And I know it. And everybody, whether they'll admit to it or not, whether they act like it or not, everybody has it. Even a kid who's been like, you know, torn apart from his family, been forced to be addicted to some terrible substance and put into a child army in North Africa still has somewhere inside of his being a justice meter, you know? Somewhere in there. Why? Because they were created in the image of God. And God has a justice meter. And so because of that, when we've done something wrong, we know that there needs to be atonement. There needs to be punishment for that. And if it's not going to be us that's going to pay, somebody's going to have to. So we need the blood atonement of Christ. And that's not just about justifying the right and the wrong. It's also about bringing us back into balance. Because you know how it is when, you have, when you've done something wrong. I, man, I did something, I, and I'm not going to get into it with you guys, you know, but I did something uh, like, like a week or two ago that like, I, I was like, I just knew I shouldn't have done it, you know, and I did it, and I didn't talk to Jen about it, and afterwards I was like, I'm going to have to talk to my wife about this, you know, and I was like, oh man, you know, it's one of those things, it wasn't a big deal, but it, it was just, but, and I, but my conscience, our relationship was not okay until I went and said that. You know, because of my internal justice meter, I knew that our relationship was breached. And until something happens in this relationship, we can't get back to square. And on the one end, my conscience needs to be satisfied. Justice needs to happen. Atonement needs to happen. 
on the other side of the relational equation, we can't be okay unless something else happens. What's that? Forgiveness. There has to be forgiveness. So there needs to be punishment and atonement for me to feel okay. And then there has to be forgiveness for the other person to feel okay. And either way, the relationship is breached until those two things are taken care of. So when the father sends his son to die on the cross as a perpetuation for our sins, as blood atonement for us, what he's doing is he's cleansing from our hearts and our minds the sense of guilt and shame that we carry. And he wants us to get rid, to dump the guilt and to dump the shame because we're never going to be able to relate to him appropriately or to each other appropriately if we're carrying a bunch of guilt and shame because now we're going to work, our whole lives are going to be reacting to our pain and reacting to our guilt and reacting to our shame instead of actually living in the fullness of what he has for us, right? And on the other hand, there actually needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be redemption. There needs to be, we need to be made good. And so he actually also imputes righteousness on top of us. He makes us good and he forgives us of our sins and he cleanses. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross according to the scriptures. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then it says, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That he was buried. So he was buried and that implies death, right? How do we know that Jesus was dead? There was witnesses. One thing. What else? How do we know that Jesus was dead? In the biblical account, how do you know he's dead? How do you know when he's dead in the Bible? Okay, so the veil tears and all of that. We know there's spiritual stuff going on, but there's these soldiers come up to Jesus, right? They're the ones who check him for being dead, right? And I don't want to get into all the gory details, but crucifixion, people, the way that people died from crucifixion is through suffocation. You know that, right? And so, the, you know, their lungs would begin to eventually fill up with fluid. And as they were hanging there, they had to pull themselves up in order to breathe because there was no room left for air. And they had to expand their chest cavity in order to get a breath. And then they would come back down and they couldn't breathe anymore. But it was excruciating pain to pull yourself up because you're sitting there on your limbs, you know, and, and on, like nails going through your hands and arms. And you're trying to pull yourself up. And, the, and, and there's, there's blood and fluid filling up the lungs and you're trying to get a breath. And then you come back down. And eventually they would die through suffocation because they couldn't pull themselves up. They lost strength and they would suffocate. Okay, that's how crucifixion happened. If they wanted to speed the process up, what did they do? They broke their legs because they could no longer push themselves up and they'd suffocate. When they got to Jesus, did they break his legs? No, why not? Because he was already dead. Okay, so Jesus was already dead. And so they took a spear and they took a spear and they put it into his side. And what happened when they put the spear in his side? Blood and water come flowing out. Why did blood and water come flowing out of his side? Because his heart had already exploded. And when his heart exploded, it filled this area with all of his blood and the water, which means Jesus literally died of a broken heart. Okay? And so that's what we know about Christ and the crucifixion and his death. And when he dies, they don't even have to break his legs, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy that not one of his bones shall be broken. And Joseph of Arimathea takes him and takes a real body of Jesus and puts a real body of Jesus in a real tomb in Israel. And then he puts a real big rock in front of this tomb. And they really seal this tomb. And Jesus' body is laying dead inside of this tomb. Really, really dead. Okay, dead, dead, real. And then on the third day, he rises from the dead according to the scripture. Okay, so this is the gospel. Then 
for some reason, Paul decides that he has to tell us about everyone who Jesus appears to when he rises from the dead. You know, and at first he's like, he appears to Peter, who isn't actually who he appeared to first, but that's who they knew, you know, Cephas, the big one they knew. And so he appears to Peter. And then he also appears to the 12. And then he appears to 500 people at the same time. And then he appears to James. And then all the apostles. Notice, just side note real quick. Notice there was the 12. And then there was all the apostles. Just notice that, okay? And then come to the spiritual gifts class and you'll learn more about that. Um, so, the, and then there's the, and then he says, and after that, he appears to me, you know, Paul, one abnormally born, because I don't deserve to, because I used to be a Christian killer, you know, I used to persecute the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Why does he have to tell them all of that? All right, well, before we answer that, I want to ask you another set of questions. Have you ever wondered if it's like crazy arrogant to say that the truth uh, the Christian faith is true and all the other faiths are not, you know? Have you ever thought maybe that's really incredibly arrogant? Like how can we, sitting here, being born into America where the reigning, uh, you know, religion is Christianity and we've been taught this doctrine and we hold on to it and we believe it's true. And if, but if I was born in United Arab Emirates or if I was born in the Sudan or if I was born in China or if I was born in Nepal, I'd be believing any number of other religions potentially, right? I'd be, I'd be, you know, into Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. I'd be into Islam or I'd be into Judaism or I'd be into whatever else it is, you know, and that's what I would have grown up with. And that's what I thought was truth. And here we are standing saying, we got it right. No, y'all got it wrong. Doesn't that seem arrogant? Doesn't that seem crazy? And yet the problem is, is when we read the scripture and it says that I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me and Jesus makes these exclusive claims that were like, oh, wow, like that's tough to handle. And now I feel like I'm arrogant for saying that this is the truth, but he's the one who really said it, you know, not me. And, but then if we're gonna say that what he said is true, then we better actually be able to hold on to that. Have you ever had the thought that like, you know, I'm a little intimidated about sharing my faith because like if someone actually asked me those questions about why do I believe that my faith is, is legit and theirs isn't, I might have difficulty, you know, defending that. Maybe you've said, I have a hard time sharing the gospel because I don't know enough about the scriptures or about all that stuff. Have you ever had that kind of thought before where it's like, I'd like to actually engage others with the truth because if it is the truth, they need to know it. But um, I have a hard time with that because I don't even know how to defend it. Anybody ever feel that kind of thing? You know, maybe you've even felt uh, this, this thing where, you know, the gospel, the, the truth of the scriptures is like really good conceptually. Everything about it makes sense and everything. But when it comes to the, you know, back then they had the, the demonstration of power. You know, there was all these moments where there's like miracles happening. There's phenomenal stuff that was taking place and everyone kind of knew. Like you remember when Jesus, Jesus heals people and, and the Pharisees get all mad at him? And, and then everyone's like, yeah, but like, did you see what the guy did? You know, like he, it's hard to argue with, you know? And, and this is that whole thing where we look at our lives and we're like, I don't know enough to defend the truth. And I don't necessarily see all the power thing going on. And I don't know, like, if it's cool for me to be saying that our truth is right and theirs isn't. And you put all that together and you can be really in a fearful spot instead of a strong, confident, assertive spot in the faith. And then after a while, you start to say, is there actually power in this thing or not? You know, 
Like, is this like good? Is this a, like a good religion or is there actually like power in this thing? And if it's just a good religion, it doesn't really make much sense because he made the exclusive claims and he told us that we have to like tell everyone else about it. And yet that only works if you actually have the power behind it, you know? And, and so uh, with those questions asked, uh, we understand why Paul describes these eyewitnesses for two reasons, okay? I was a sophomore at Moody Bible Institute when I went through a major crisis of faith. I went through a, a, a significant crisis of faith where that thought of it is far too arrogant for me to say that what I believe is truth exclusively. That thought haunted me, okay? And I had some friends who came from other faith traditions who were there, who were Christians, but they had family members and everything that were from other faith uh, traditions that were outside other religions. And they were really debating about like, why, you know, if I had grown up on this side of the family instead of this side of the family, I'd believe something completely different. So why am I holding on to this one? And I kind of got drawn into that too. And I was like, you know, that's a really good point. And I started struggling through this, and I was, I was very much at a place where I was like, I think I got to like let go of my roots and go exploring a little more, you know, and figure this out. And I was in the process of kind of starting to do that, and there was this guy who was um, an upperclassman who was a friend of mine who I met uh, as a kid. Uh, he came to the church uh, with a choir. There was a men's choir from Moody that came to Parker Ford Church when it was back in its old building, and, and I was just a kid in high school. And they showed up, and they sang, and uh, I met this guy afterward, and his name was Abe, and he was a really good guy. And he kind of became, I only knew two people there. Um, at, at Moody when I got there. One is someone who had been connected to Parker Ford Church. Back then, his family was connected, uh, n- not around anymore. And uh, he lives in Chicago, I think. And the other guy was this guy. And, um, and they're the only two people I knew when I showed up. And then I met Josh. And at first service, I said, and then I wished I only knew two people. <laughs> but it's not as much fun when he's not here. Like, everybody's got to say, like, Tim was busting on you, okay? Um, Josh was really wishing that uh, I only knew two people at that point. So anyway, um, but this guy, he came and he said, Tim, what's going on? And I told him about my crisis of faith and my struggle. And you know what he said to me? He said, "Uh, Tim, do me a favor. Go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and then come back and talk to me. And he said, pray as you're reading it. So I went and I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and and I was praying over the passage and I never needed to go back and talk to him. I did, but I never needed to because God answered all my questions in this text that we're in today. And this is why, because all of those witnesses saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, you know, and Muhammad is dead. And, uh, you know, Buddha is, is not speaking to us anymore, you know. And in all the other religions, the founder of the religion is no longer alive, except when it comes to Christ. He's the only one who actually conquered the great equalizer of men, death. And the reason we know this is because of the eyewitnesses. And let me explain this for a second, because this is really important to know. This is a very important thing for us to understand. And that's that it's a verified fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Okay? Empirical evidence will tell you that. The greatest assumption of all the empirical evidence is also that that man died on a cross, on a Roman cross, around the time that the Bible has him dying on that cross. Okay? There's also empirical evidence and very clear evidence in our world today that the most explosive movement movement that ever touched the face of our earth is what happened in the church just after the claims that Jesus rose from the dead and that our world would never be the same. It was drastically changed because of the people who said that they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. 
All of those things are verifiable facts. There's one other verifiable fact that it's really important to know. And this is that those people who claimed that they saw Jesus after he died, that most of them died martyrs' deaths because they wouldn't recant that truth. People die all the time for things that aren't true. But masses of people don't die for things that they know are false. That's not humanity. We are way too selfish for that. Way too selfish to be dying for things that we know are not true. Forget it. You want my, some scandal went on in the company and you want me to lose my job and you want me to lose, put my neck on the line and you want me to die to cover up your scandal? Are you kidding me? People don't do that. Oh, they'll try to cover up if it means saving their own neck somehow. But masses of people trying to cover up a known lie and dying for it? No, it doesn't happen. It's not humanity. And when you look across the pages of history and you step outside of the word of the Bible and you just look at the empirical evidence in history and you add it all up and you say, what makes the most sense out of this thing? Honestly, even though every person in the world other than this man has died, still the thing that makes the most sense about that period of time is that this guy actually rose from the dead like he said he was going to. It's the thing that makes the most sense. Everything else takes a lot of work to make sense of. And that truth helped me huge in understanding that. But you know what? That's not the primary power of the gospel. It's really not. It's not the primary power of the gospel. And it's not the primary importance of us seeing the resurrection. Because most people in our day and age, in the Western world today, they don't care which thing is more true than the other? In general, in our world, it doesn't matter if you can logistically seem to give evidence that makes your truth more important than mine. I don't really care. People don't really care in general. You know what they care about? They care about what works. They care about what positively affects their life. In general, you can tell me everything that's true, but that's not good news to me. I don't really care what's true. I care about what's good news to my life. That's what people care about these days. It's not what people have always cared about. I mean, there's been great search in Christian apologetics to affirm the foundations of the truth because there's major debate over this religion and that religion and what's true. But in general, you start having those kind of debates on public TV, guess who's going to watch it? Like, no one, you know? Very, very few people are going to watch that. What are people going to watch? News that affects their life. And they're not interested in just the power that, that reveals truth. They're interested in the power that can reveal change. And change has been a political mantra in our society. All across our political society, whether you're Republican or Democrat, the mantra is change. We can change things. You know, politics can change like almost nothing. Almost nothing. Really. I mean, momentarily, there can be change because of politics. But foundationally, it doesn't have the ability to shift who we are. See, the power of the gospel is just this. When you're standing in front of a casket of someone you love, and apparently this man can raise them from the dead. That's real power that affects real people in real lives. 
See, when the man you love dies and he gets buried in a tomb and you followed him for three years of your life and everything you've learned to believe and trust in goes into the tomb with him, his ability to rise from the dead is the kind of power that I'm looking for. Because that is real power in a real world that can affect real change, that can really make me different. And if you're telling me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that when it all boils down, what it's about is about love, well, I live in a world that knows about everything except love. And I live a life that is drawn to doing everything in life about me, but not to doing the thing that's loving. And so if I'm going to be transformed from being selfish to being loving, then guess what I need? I need real power for a real life right here. And if Corinth is going to be church in the real world, then they need to know the real power. And he goes back to the gospel, to the basics. And he says, Christ died on the cross for your sins. According to the scriptures, he was dead and he rose from the dead. And then he appeared to all these people and they all saw the same thing. So it's not delusional. And they all died for it. So don't act like it's not legit. You know? And at the end of that, we have power. And here's the power. The power... And the, the power is that someone can rise from the dead. I mean, it's the great equalizer. How do we know that he rose from the dead? Because of the testimony of the people. Now, the, those who testify, if, if they are testifying that they saw him rise from the dead and we can believe in their testimony, then we can also believe in his word. And what is it that he says? He says that that death, that he died on the cross for our what? For our sin. Which means, and this is the big word of the gospel, is that his death wasn't, it wasn't just about dying and resurrecting. It's about the removal of sin. And so in our society, we define who we are by what? By what we do. We define who we are by what we do. So when you meet someone, hi, I'm Tim, I'm so-and-so, what do you do? You know, that's who you are, you know? And what have you accomplished? And what do you, you know? And there's serious drawbacks to that. And we understand that we are sinners because we've sinned. But underneath of it, we were created by God and we're children of God. And death, on the, death on the cross is the removal of sin from our lives. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen to me. Who you are is not your sin. Who you are is not your righteousness. Who you are is not what you've accomplished. It's not how you failed. Who you are is completely and totally separate from those things. I've taken your sins from you. I've buried them in the grave and have left them there when I rose from the dead. I've taken your sins and I've separated them from you as far as the east is from the west. They're completely separate from you. Who you are now is not your sin. Who you are is not what you do. Well, it doesn't matter if someone says that to us, let alone some guy from 2,000 years ago. Who really cares? Because right now, I have a person at the workplace who has an opinion about me, and it's not sinless, you know? And I have a spouse who I really want to make things work with, and we want to have a good relationship, and what they think really matters, and, and what my kids think really matters, and what everyone else thinks, that really matters. Who cares what this guy from 2,000 years ago says about my life? How is that power? How is that good news? How is that able to transform my life? I'll tell you how, because he can rise from the dead. That's how. And no one else can. 
And so no one else knows what's going on. But he does. Everyone else will die. And he rises from the dead. And so what everyone else says about me is irrelevant. The only one that matters is the one who can rise from the dead. And see, the problem with my life, the problem with Tim Deering's life, is that it's so easily defined by what I think and by what you think and by what everyone else thinks and says that I am or thinks that I am. But the real issue is, will I hold unswervingly to the truth of the gospel that the only one who has the right to define me is the one who created me and the one who redeemed me and the one who rose from the dead and looks at me and says, you are no longer a sinner. You are a child of the living God, you are righteous and redeemed. And I would love it if you would stop worrying about who you are or what you have to prove. And instead, you can hold on to the truth of the risen one who says, you are a loved child of God. And if you will hold unswervingly to that truth, it is amazing what will happen. And 1 Corinthians 13 will all of a sudden become possible because 1 Corinthians 15 already took place. When it comes to the sharing of the gospel, there's this beautiful moment. This is one of my favorite moments in all of scripture. And it's, I probably say that a lot. John chapter 9 um, is this moment where there's this guy who's been blind his whole life. He's been blind. And he's never seen a thing. And, uh, and he's sitting by the pool and he's wanting to get uh, healed. And he hears that Jesus is around. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, hey, what can I do for you? And the guy says, you can give my sight. That'd be awesome. You know? He doesn't say it like that. That's Tim's paraphrase. And um, poetic license. Jesus takes mud and puts it on his eyes, and he says, go and wash in the pool. And Jesus disappears. Man washes his eyes, opens them up, and they work. Is that power? Real, real power for real life, okay? He sees. This, this, is, not, this is not a story. This is not a story in a religious book. This is historical, okay? This happened. Jesus put mud on a guy's eyes and he washed him in a pool and he had never seen before and that day he saw. You can imagine the reaction of people. What happens is they're all like, what? What happened? Aren't you the guy who was blind? And then he's like, yeah. And they're like, who did this? And he says, Jesus did. Where is he? We don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I just, it's amazing though. So they're like, well, we gotta go and get the Pharisees. And why do they have to go and get the Pharisees? Because at this point, Pharisees already hate Jesus and they're already, uh, they're already trying to kill him. Why? Because he has power. And because they don't want him to have power. Because it means their loss of control. Control is what you substitute when you don't have power. When you have power, you don't need control. You have power. But people try to maintain control when they don't have power. And their control was being threatened because there was someone who had power in their midst. And so they're trying to get him down. And what they're doing is, is it says, in, well, they go and take the guy, the, the, the guy who was blind, but can now see. They take him to the religious leaders and they say, this guy was healed. They said, and they said, who healed you? And they say, Jesus. And they said, oh, Jesus. Where is he? I don't know. They say, well, what do you think about this man? And the guy says, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And they say, he can't be a prophet. You know Why? He can't be a prophet because he healed you on the Sabbath. And if he was a prophet, he wouldn't do that on the Sabbath. That's a violation of the law. And so he can't do it. So they wanted to engage in a theological debate with this man about whether or not Jesus was a prophet. 
And what's more is, is they get his parents. And they get his parents and they bring his parents in and they say, tell us about this whole scene. Is this man a prophet? And you know what they say to him? They say, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Ask the son. And they wouldn't declare it. And you know why? Because it says that the Pharisees had already decided that they would throw people out of the synagogue who were following Jesus. You know what that means is their minds were already made up. They were trying to engage in a theological debate, but their minds were already made up. How well is that debate going to go? It's going nowhere. It doesn't matter. They're obstinate. They don't care. They just want to cause the problem and they, find, they want to find a way to poke holes in it. They're not interested in learning. When it comes to sharing our faith, most of the time, you know what? It doesn't matter what we know because most of the time, it's already a decision that's made. People in their hearts are already making the decision. They may or may not have information, but the question is about whether or not their hearts are inclined toward or away from God. And these guys, it didn't matter what information you gave them. It didn't matter if you had bulletproof evidence. It didn't matter if they went back and told about him being Lord of the Sabbath. And if they said he was born in Bethlehem and they told him all the stuff and answered all their questions, guess what? It wouldn't have changed a thing. Honestly, it wouldn't have changed a thing. Because the real issue was they wanted to be in control. They didn't want to submit to his power. And so what happens is they've, they've made up their mind. They said, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to kick people out of the synagogue if they're following Jesus. So this guy's parents won't testify about what Jesus did because they're afraid. And so they won't testify. So they come back to this guy. And this is where it gets sweet. This is the best moment, okay? This is why I love it. They come back to this guy and they just say this. They say, so tell us. Is this man a sinner or not because he sinned on the Sabbath? Because he, he healed on the Sabbath. And they asked this guy, who's just some guy who's been sitting along the street, to define for them, the religious leaders, what's right and wrong. Like he's supposed to be the foundation of truth, you know? And, and, and they ask him, and they're like, tell us, because they're just waiting to nail this guy, you know? And, and, and so his answer is absolutely priceless. Whether he is a sinner or not, I know not. But this I do know, I was blind and now I see. Power. Power. Real power. Real gospel. Real Jesus. We understand that the truth of this word is not a doctrine that we subscribe to so that someday we won't burn. It's much bigger than that. It's a real person who lives among us in his spirit. And that if we will learn to depend on him and to know him and live in him and hold unswervingly to what he says about me in this word instead of believing what I think or what you think or anyone else, but if I will make this my reality and hold on to it because he rose from the dead so he has the, legit, he has the validation to say it and I will say this is truth. What the media says is not good news. What I think in my mind is not good news. What you all think about me, I love you all, it's not good news, you know? There's only one who brings news that's powerful enough to change my life. It's when he looks at me and he says, Tim, you are my son, I love you, and your sins aren't even in the picture anymore. When I see you, you are a righteous man of God and don't let anyone ever tell you anything different. Stand in the confidence of that and never again worry about yourself because you don't have to. I got you. I got you. That's a real God, a real person, really present, who really loves us and really has the authority to say it. And if I will really trust him, it will really change my life because it's real power for a real world, for a real church.
I want you to really say amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray.